0: Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning as we delve into the world of science. Thank you very much to Irish Voice for the show beforehand, uh, but now we're making our way from Ireland into the uh, scientific country. And uh, today we are talking about pint of science. That's right, uh, not necessarily the science of beer, but, uh, but a chance to enjoy beer and science coming up this week, Monday to Wednesday here in Canberra and across Australia. There's a huge range of events uh, where research scientists are going to be talking about their work in the past. Hub. happened first in Australia in 2014 and this year there's 53 venues across 19 cities a total of 154 events across Australia and 12 of those are right here in Canberra so today in uh, fuzzy logic we're lucky enough to have a few of those researchers with us appearing on the upcoming pint of science events we're going to get a little preview of what they're talking about get to know them a little bit better and then uh, find out where they are talking this week so you can uh, find out some more about them and and get along and uh, see what they have to say. Uh, so I've decided we've got four guests in today and I've got my first two in the studio here with me and I'm going to introduce them and uh, I did a bit of background research and tried to relate you to what sort of a pint you would be if you were genuinely a pint of science uh, and my first guest is uh, Belinda Wilson and uh, Belinda I think you are a pint of goes now you might you might be wondering why uh, but goes is an old-fashioned beer that kind of went out for quite a while While, but now it's back with a vengeance. It's all over the pubs and that sort of thing. I think that relates well to your research. I think it does. uh, In. uh in uh, Quolls. And uh, Belinda, conservation ecologist uh, specialising in reintroduction biology, uh, behavioural ecology and spatial dynamics out of the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the ANU but also at Mulligan's Flat. Welcome along today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Pleasure. We're going to talk to you about your work in just a moment but I should introduce our next guest as well over on the other microphone. uh, Dr Jason Sharples. Now Jason, uh, I looked into you and I thought well you're probably a pint of a smoky porter in that uh, you're a complex drink there's a lot going on and there's a faint smell of smoky fire in there do you reckon that uh, that sums up your work pretty
2: well yeah anything that anything that's smoky I'm I'm into so (laughs) I'll I'll take that yep
0: very nice well Jason you are an associate professor of uh, applied and industrial mathematics at uh, UNSW here in Canberra involved in a number of projects. uh, especially around uh, dynamic fire propagation and extreme bushfire development. Uh, pleasure to have you with us. Welcome along this morning. No, pleasure to be here. Uh, now, I thought we'd, uh, we might start and uh, look at what a day in the office is like for you folks, because I think we've got a huge range of scientists in today, and, and the day in the office is going to look different for all of you. So maybe we'll start with you, Belinda. What's a, what's a typical day for you?
1: Well, uh, believe it or not, it sometimes starts at 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, so
0: <laughs> that's, that's an early morning wake up call.
1: Oh, well and truly. While everybody else is uh, sound asleep, uh, we all kind of gather together out the front of Mulligan's flat. And um, yeah, we get our cars together and then we head out to check traps. So, what we've done just in the past week or so is we've had qual monitoring. Uh, which is looking at how the population is fluctuating numbers-wise throughout the sanctuary. And we go along in four different teams and we check all of our traps and hopefully in many of them we end up with little eyes with spots on their backs looking at us. And, (laughs) yeah, in the last one we got somewhere in the range of 30 to 40, so it's looking really nice for our population.
0: Yeah, so you're out there looking for for quolls. Um, what, What is a quoll. What does it actually look like? It's a
1: very, very good question. Quite a lot of people don't know uh, what a quoll is. Uh, It's what we call a carnivorous marsupial. So it is a native predator. And um, when I say marsupial, it's just like a wombat, just like a koala. It's got its own pouch. And amazingly... um, Each female is capable of giving birth to up to 30 rice-sized, pink, blind and hairless little babies um, all at once, and it's really quite a miracle. However, uh, when they make their way up from the tracts to the pouch, uh, when they get there, there's only six teats. So from the very beginning, it is survival of the fittest for this carnivore, um, and only the six strongest and fastest get to grow and live from there.
0: Wow, very yeah. interesting indeed. Okay, that's a, that's an early start for your days looking for these oh, yeah. these cute little marsupials. Jason,
2: are you up at two a.m. Uh, for your work? I'm, I'm usually up at two a.m., but because I haven't gone to bed yet. <laughs> <laughs> so right, so a typical typical day for you is a late night. Late night, yeah. Writing papers and uh, things like that. But I mean, in the office, a typical day is, um, you know basically looking at the equations which uh, sort of have to do with um, fire behaviour, fire weather, um, those sorts of things. So you know, dealing with equations, crunching numbers on supercomputers, things like that.
0: Yeah, okay. So yeah, your role is an applied mathematician. Now that's a, a pretty unique term. What what really is an applied mathematician? What do you do in
2: that role? Well, it's a fairly broad uh, description. I mean, there's there's lots of different flavours of applied mathematician, but... I guess the thing we all have in common is we're using mathematics and, you know, mathematical equations and and, uh, those sorts of things to try and understand different aspects of of the natural world.
0: Right. And in your case, you're applying that to uh, to fire. Now, fire to me seems like something that's pretty unpredictable, Um, even just sitting there watching a little campfire and that sort of thing. You know, the flames are popping out in every direction. How do you describe something that's so unpredictable with maths?
2: Well, I guess, I mean... Me personally, we don't really try to predict it down to that level of detail. That, that, that is really hard stuff. So, what we try to do is really um, get an understanding of the processes which drive bushfires across landscapes. Yeah. So, you know, and in particular, I'm interested in, in really big ones. And so, when you start to look at it at that sort of scale, they do take on sort of characteristics that you can start to get a handle on through mathematics.
0: Right. And so are you trying to help uh, inform uh, the emergency services throughout a summer period? Is that where your research is being
2: applied? That's where it uh, ends up, and ultimately, yeah. But it really it's trying to understand you know, the processes which, which go on out in the, um, you know, the Brindabellas out the back of uh, Canberra here. Um, generally trying to understand how things like wind, uh, the weather, um, fuels, topography... How those sorts of things combine to influence how fire is going to spread, and of course, if you can understand that, then giving that sort of information to fire agencies gives them a uh, you know a few tools to be able to do their jobs better.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And are you ever out in the field to, to measure? Because there's a lot of variables that you're talking about. There is that you out in the field measuring those, or are you relying uh, sometimes, on sometimes?
2: Not not so much these days, but um, <laughs> you know, a few years ago, I was definitely heading out. On a regular basis, sticking up weather stations in places where people don't normally stick them, climbing up and down hills, measuring winds, measuring relative humidities, all that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah.
0: Do, do you ever end up close to fire in those sorts of situations?
2: Um, not as a researcher. As a firefighter, I do. <laughs> <laughs> So you're not only an applied mathematician for a fire, you're an applied firefighter as well. Volunteer.
0: Volunteer, fantastic, fantastic. Well, you know, some interesting work out in the field. And uh, you head out in the field too, Belinda, and we're talking about these uh, carnivorous marsupials. Have you ever been bitten by uh, one of the quolls?
1: Sadly, I have. I've got a couple of scars to prove it. Um, It's just a rite (laughs) of passage in this field, I'm afraid, but that's all right. And yeah, for the most part, it's really just my fingers being in the wrong spot. They're certainly not um, going out looking to bite you. Uh, it's just, yeah, luck of the draw, really. Yeah.
0: So these are, these are really interesting uh, creatures because they were once extinct on mainland Australia, um, as, uh, as we were talking about earlier. And so where did we get this population from that we're trying to reintroduce back here?
1: So uh, I guess we'll go into their story, which is that they were um, all across mainland Australia, um, just a normal part of our landscape, and unfortunately due to a combination of foxes and cats and disease and human persecution as it turns out. They became extinct about 60 years ago on the mainland and 80 years ago in the ACT so been missing for longer but thankfully we still had an insurance population down in Tasmania so there weren't as many foxes down there so they were able to survive but Keeping in mind things like climate change and deforestation and what have you, their populations down there are still at risk. So what we need is insurance populations on the mainland to try and bolster us. Yeah.
0: Okay, and you're currently working on an insurance population right here in Canberra. That's right. Uh, how big is that population at the moment?
1: So, we're looking somewhere in the range of 40 to 60 animals, uh, give or take, and just like everything else that changes depending on the conditions and, yeah, drought and things like that can affect it. But they're looking very healthy at the moment and they've absolutely bounced up despite only being here now for three years. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's fantastic. So, currently they're in a controlled area in Mulligan's Flat.
1: Yeah, Yeah. it's a predator-proof sanctuary. So it's got a big uh, fence going around the outside. And this isn't a small area. Mulligan's Flat Woodland Sanctuary is 485 hectares of box gum grassy woodlands, which in itself is a critically endangered ecosystem. So really needed protecting. And we've actually got an extended sanctuary, which is now online. So we're about to triple in size as well. And all that land will be available to the species that we're hoping to reintroduce to restore the ecosystem to the way it was well over 100 years ago.
0: Yeah, fantastic so taking a step back in time almost how do you think the the quolls would go outside of that controlled area have you had any population's escape or anything like that? Yeah
1: absolutely so back in 2016 when the first release happened um, we didn't think that these tiny little animals uh, would be all that interested in climbing our fence but out they went and luckily they were mostly wearing our radio collars so we were able to chase them around the landscape and to the point that I found one uh, under a porch uh, someone's house in Ford it was just sitting there (laughs) curled up and we managed to get it and bring it back but uh, I will admit that, yeah, for the most part, um, foxes tended to get to the calls before we did. And that just really uh, reinforces how much of a threat foxes pose to on mainland reintroductions.
0: Yeah, interesting. It's it's a huge effect that we've had um, through our own uh, environment. I guess the, mm. the European settlement throughout this this area really has changed the behaviours there. Um are there any other animals similar to quolls that, uh, that we've lost over this period that you're aware of?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the superstars of our sanctuary is the eastern betong, which is kind of like a mini rat-looking kangaroo. They're really quite cute. Um, and they, were, they became extinct on the mainland 100 years ago. So they've been uh, gone for a very long time and they actually perform a really important uh, ecosystem role and uh, they've been called ecosystem engineers just because of the way that they they dig for their food and therefore they change the landscape and they help to help things grow yeah. and so um, bringing in an animal like that an engineer and also a predator means that we're trying to strike the balance back up again because we've definitely lost balance over these years yeah
0: well, and that balance is an interesting thing um Because if we look at uh, the landscape in general and and look at things like bushfires, um, you know, across history, bushfires were, um, you know, sometimes a natural part of our landscape or even part of um, uh, Indigenous knowledge that was used to do fire farming and that sort of thing across Australia. Um, How much does your work look on what's happened in the past versus what's happening now,
2: Jason? We've we've touched on it. I mean, we we had a study a few years ago where we looked at... um, Frequency and occurrence of really big extreme bushfire events, so things like Black Saturday or the all the fires we had in Canberra, it's really hard to get a, a good idea of how often they happened in the deep past. Yeah. Um, but certainly the records we have, you know, from from settlement, uh, from when the Europeans arrived, there is a, a you know a suggestion there that these things are becoming more frequent.
0: Yeah. Okay. And I guess um, how, how does. Uh... Your research around this help us uh, understand the, the causes of these bushfires,
2: or ha- ha- what's the applications? So these these fires, I mean, all, all fires start small, right? Yeah. I mean, they all start from a single ignition. Um, the majority of them stay relatively small, and there's only the rare few which really grow into these big sort of historical events, like like the ones I mentioned. Um, what we've found through the research is that there are, are certain things which seem to always be present when these when these big fires develop. Um, and what we've done is we've really tied this down to a certain um, fire behavioural process, which are triggered by a number of different um, particular mechanisms. But what it ultimately um, ends up with is large areas of active flame. Okay, We refer to this as deep flaming events. So there'll be certain conditions of the topography and the wind, which will interact with each other, and the fire to produce these sort of massive areas of flaming. Once you get that massive area of flaming, if your atmosphere is... Um, sort of got the right characteristics to it, then the fire plume will actually develop into its own sort of storm cell. So understanding how these storm cells develop is, is really what we spend most of our time trying to do.
0: Right. And uh, what what sort of understanding have you reached at this stage? Are, are you identifying those conditions and, and that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, so where, where we're at at the moment is really understanding that there's a balance between what the atmosphere is doing and what the fire is doing. So, for example... You know, an ordinary thunderstorm will just brew up when the atmosphere has a, a certain you know, certain properties. We we'll call it instability. So if the, if the atmosphere is in, unstable, then thunderstorms are more likely. Even if you don't have a fire, when you put a fire in there, then you don't have to have as much atmospheric instability around for these things to develop a firestorm. But trying to understand how much fire you need for your instability conditions that you have, that's we're at—that's the sort of the coal face of our research at the moment.
0: Okay. And does this sort of research feed into things like our fire
2: danger ratings that we see out there? It's—it—it it, it touches on that. I mean, the fire danger rating is really looking at just the weather at the surface, so how hot, dry, and windy it is, essentially. Um, the research we're doing is bringing in, I guess, the the vertical element of the atmosphere, so going beyond the surface, um, looking on what's you know going three or four kilometers up in the air, even. Yeah and trying to understand how those upper atmospheric um, features combine with the stuff that's going on, on the ground to give you these sort of perfect conditions for, for a firestorm to brew up.
0: Yeah, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff, indeed. Um, and uh, is there ever an emergency call out to, to you as the, uh, the researcher around there? You know, fires happen uh, unexpectedly, they change unexpectedly. Do you ever get the, uh, the emergency call to come in and, and lend your expertise?
2: Not not so much to come in, but there's certainly a flurry of emails that yeah. um, that, that go on um, when, yeah. when a big fire's going, yeah. And we're yeah. sort of providing advice in the background on, on what we think might you know, might happen.
0: Yeah, so what was the, the latest fire event that you provided advice
2: on? Uh, probably the latest one, there was uh, some fires down um, the Yankees Gap Fire down on the south coast. Yeah. But the one before that, I think the main one was the uh, 2017 Sir Ivan Fire up near Dunny doo
0: Right. And what sort of advice were you able to provide there?
2: Well, I was really looking at it and saying, you know, the day before, this fire looks like it's going to have all the right ingredients to go pop the next day. And and it it did. So it developed into what we call a nimbus, which is literally a fire thunderstorm.
0: Yeah, wow, that's uh, that's an amazing name, but yeah, it sounds very frightening.
2: Uh, yeah, it's not not something you want to be caught up in.
0: No, no. So I imagine there, if you're aware of that, if you've got the the uh, advice from you, you can then uh, prepare your fire crews accordingly.
2: Yeah, so it's it's sort of gets to the point where these fires escalate to that sort of level, you you're not going to put them out with fire trucks or things like that. So really, it 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 gives the uh, you know, the fire agencies uh, uh, another set of options that they need to look at and really that's sort of falling back rather than trying to aggressively attack the fire sort of moving back into more property protection um dealing with embers and that sort of thing
0: yeah right very interesting and for you belinda what's an emergency in uh, in your area of research have you had to respond to something quickly or or has it just been rescuing the quolls that have escaped from the uh the conservation park
1: i think that's really the the closest (laughs) i would get to an emergency um (laughs) And yeah, during the early stages of a of a release, we go out there radio tracking them every single day, and we make sure we get out there uh, bright and early in the morning. So that if it does in fact take us all day to find one, and we do find it outside, we can still respond within <laughs> daylight and manage to get it back. Um, but yeah, uh, for the most part, um, in the most recent years, uh, because of the the research that I've been able to conduct. Um, with all of the amazing partners, um, we've actually changed the method quite a bit, which means we're getting far fewer escapees, and ending up with a very, I guess, successful reintroduction. Yeah. And that's that's what you could hope for. Anything I could, the best I could hope for for my PhD and for the species itself.
0: Yeah, awesome. And what sort of? Um Role do the quolls play in our environment? You know, we were talking about the betongs before as, um, mm. you know, digging up and, and creating that change in the environment. What sort of role do the quolls play?
1: So as a predator, they're really important in recycling nutrients throughout the system. So uh, they tend to eat, uh, 85% of their diet is insects and grubs and things. So that's a really important role in itself is keeping insect numbers controllable. Um, And then beyond there, uh, particularly during winter when the insect numbers go down, they can go after uh, small birds, small reptiles, small mammals, things like that. Anything basically smaller than it. And these quolls are not exactly large either. They max out at about two kilos, so they're smaller than cats and dogs for sure. But yeah, in that way, it's just about recycling nutrients. And something that a lot of people don't realize is that predators are needed so that the prey end up with the right, um, I guess, anti-predator training. So they're not naive. And that can actually be really interesting to research because... You don't want a landscape full of animals that are really naive to, prey, uh, to predators because as soon as they leave the sanctuary and they head out into a landscape that perhaps has foxes and cats, they've got no defense and they're just easy, um, an easy meal. So the uh, quolls in one way could be seen as kind of training all the other animals in there to just keep on their toes and <laughs> yeah, not get too comfortable. It's called a, a landscape of fear, and that's very important in natural wild ecosystems, as is mulligans.
0: Yeah that's that's quite interesting to think about um really because uh that's that's the genuine wild there and I think sometimes we want to you know make everyone happy and, and <laughs> have them, have them in a nice environment but I suppose recreating a, a genuine environment is much more important for exactly. them Exactly yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Um, in terms of the the historic influence of the quolls, uh, um, have, are you able to look back on on records at all to see where they were, or even some of the indigenous knowledge um, through the, throughout our local regions?
1: It's hard to get a hold of information like that. I do know that they're um, in one of the mobs. Their name was Luana, um, and we're trying to make a switch now from going from um, names that were uh, made by European settlers to traditional um, Aboriginal names for a lot of the species. Another um, one is the Tuditch, and yeah, we're making that move. But in terms of their role, uh, there's an awful lot of newspaper clippings you can find online that talk about this native cat which used to run around and the settlers did not know what they were and did not understand why they loved their chickens so much and that's part of the reason why they're gone now is because they're really really good at getting into chicken pens um unfortunately much like foxes are now yeah. and i know what i would prefer honestly is a, is the little native um quoll to a to a fox in our landscape but yeah unfortunately, um, um and Yeah, in the case of the Betong as well, bounties were put on their head and um, very quickly we lost them. So I'd like to think we've learnt a little something from that experience.
0: Yeah, for sure, indeed. Um, So one thing, uh, you're both uh, scientists here, you've both been working in your field for a little while, but uh, it's always interesting, I find, to work out how you actually got into this uh, space. So for you, Jason, what what brought you into the world of um, mathematics and applying it to uh, to our um, bushfires?
2: Uh, I guess ultimately it was Newton's laws. Um, just way back in high school, realizing that you know you could actually write down a mathematical equation, F equals ma, and that could get you to the moon. Um, yeah. You know that that sort of just blew me away. So after that, it was pretty much sign me up to anything sort of mathematical and physical. And so I studied mathematical physics all through through university. Um, after my PhD, I sort of felt like I should be probably doing something a little bit more useful. So I did a whole lot of research into uh, uh, rainfall and evaporation and things like that. About the same time, I became a volunteer firefighter, and then a job came up where it was looking at sort of you know, mathematical modelling of fire. And I thought, well, yeah, that seems to <laughs> seems to suit me pretty well. So yeah. um, jumped on, jumped into that, and been there ever since.
0: Yeah, wonderful. And you talked about F equals M A there as the, the equation that got you in. What does a, a fire equation look like? I mean I'm presuming it's, it's not as simple as F equals M A? No,
2: it's still F equals MA. I mean that that's <laughs> that's that's the equation which describes the motion of the fluid, or one of the equations at least. Yeah, so it's um and and fire is basically a really hot fluid. So yeah, it's still there.
0: Yeah. There you go. It's a lot simpler than
2: I thought. <laughs> Taking into account a 100 different variables, though, around that, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, it's not quite that simple. It's not, not quite F equals MA, but, I mean, that's, that's there at the centre of it.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And, Belinda, what brought you into uh, the world of quolls?
1: Um, oh, I think it really started from the very beginning. My my parents were really outdoorsy types, and so that struck up my curiosity for the environment very quickly. Yeah. And that naturally led to me choosing a degree in ecology and during my honours I had the great joy of being able to work on a data set looking at the migration behaviour of Antarctic leopard seals and that struck my um, interest into predator ecology. And therefore, the next step was to look into a terrestrial predator. And so when I saw um, the opportunity come up for a PhD looking at reintroducing a species like the quoll back to the ACT, it just looked so perfect because not only am i just studying the system but it's it's applied and what we would be doing would be making a massive difference to the landscape so i jumped on it and here we are
0: yeah fantastic and you talked about yeah the applied ecology ecology. (laughs) very (laughs) appropriate good fun (laughs) um, applied ecology there and and, and analyzing the systems um have you ever used any maths to look at these sorts of you know animal population systems jason or anything like
2: that um not not so much animal population systems i've got a phd student at the moment who's looking at sort of vegetation systems using yeah. similar ideas but i mean there's a whole whole field of applied mathematics in population dynamics so yeah. there's a lot out there that i know very little about <laughs>
0: Fantastic. I guess um, fire has probably influenced a lot of your work in uh, in looking after those quolls throughout Mulligan's there.
1: Yeah, fire is just a natural, normal, wild part of our landscape and something we need to uh, accept and respect. And to the point that um, on top of the quoll reintroductions and all the other reintroductions, there's a number of other uh, research projects going on in Mulligan's flat because it is an experimental reserve and gives us this perfect opportunity to do ecological restoration in experimental sense. So one of those projects is the impact of fire on biodiversity. And so we do have plots that we regularly burn and we measure how that impacts the different um, parts of the ecosystem. Right. So there is a connection there. Yeah.
2: There's a whole field called fire ecology. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Very interesting stuff indeed. Well, look, thank you both for joining us in the studio today and having a chat. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to want to find out more about each of you. So if they do, uh, where can they see you? Uh,
2: we're at the uh, Griffin, Griffin Bar in, um, on, on Wednesday night.
0: Fantastic. Down in Griffith there, so that's a good spot to catch you. And uh, Um, yourself, Belinda?
1: Yeah, I'll be at King O'Malley's pub at um, 6pm on Tuesday evening, so the 21st of May.
0: Fantastic. So Tuesday for the Quolls and Wednesday out at Griffiths for the fire research. Thanks, Belinda and Jason, for joining us today here on Fuzzy Logic.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Welcome. Wonderful. We've got uh, some more researchers coming up after the break and we're going to delve into a... A bit of physics, I think. I'm looking at them outside, nodding at me, yeah. Uh, A uh, bit different applied science here, but for now, let's have a little bit of music. And that was All Our Exes Live in Texas there with their song, Boundary Road. Well, in that three-minute song, I've uh, done a changeover of the guests in the studio and uh, we've brought two new scientists in right now. And uh, I'm going to introduce them as beers again because it is Pint of Science we're talking about. Um, I'm going to give you all the details for the Canberra Pint of Science events at the end of today's show. um, But as we said earlier, you can uh, find all of our guests there if you want to hear a bit more about their work. Uh, so let me introduce our next two guests. Uh, the first uh, on my left is uh, Fiona Panther. Now, Fiona, I think you're a pint of a fruity, cloudy IPA because you're full of galaxy hops uh, <laughs> as you explore <laughs> what we can't see in our universe. How, what do you feel about that?
3: Uh, thank you, I, I I think, but that, it sound, that sounds pretty accurate, uh, actually, yeah.
0: Good, good. Well, welcome along today. <laughs> thank you very uh, much. Now, Fiona, you're an Associate Lecturer at UNSW Canberra. Uh, In the area of physics, uh, but also understanding, uh, you know, the formation of our elements, the physics of cosmic rays, space-based gamma ray telescopes and all fun things like that in the universe. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to diving into that. But uh, before we do, I should introduce our other guest here. Uh, Final guest today is uh, Dr. Rose Arlfelt. Now, Rose... I think uh, you're probably a pint of crisp, clear, cold-filtered lager uh, because you carry out uh, your research. You're looking at super low temperatures here, so it's super mm-hmm. slow, yeah. cold-filtered. How does that sound?
4: Just absolutely spot on. You've got it <laughs> right, right in one.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Well, uh Welcome along today. Now, Eros, you're a physicist from the ANU. Uh, You got your PhD in Australia but worked across France and the USA. And uh, in 2018, you were named ACT Scientist of the Year. Congratulations, you. uh, and uh, you're looking at the challenges of quantum computing, quantum memory around that. Uh, so, look, let's let's dive straight in with yours, Rose. And quantum computing, I think, is probably where we should start, um, just to, to give our listeners a bit of idea about what quantum computing actually is.
4: So, the simple answer is a quantum computer is a computer that uses the quantum properties of matter. Now, that doesn't really explain anything. Um, so. <laughs> Once you start to look at objects at really at the atomic scale, so we're talking single atoms, single photons, so single particles of light, they behave in a very different way to our you know, macroscopic objects like a pen or a cup, right? So one of the things is they can exist in something called a superposition state where they're literally in a state where they can, for instance, be in two places at once. So you can have an atom that's in one place, and another place at the same time. You can have a photon that's both there and not there, and we can actually use those superposition states to store information. And you can make a computer that processes that information stored on these superposition states, which makes, a you can imagine, a very different type of computer to the ones we work on every day.
0: Yeah. So it means that these sorts of computers can be smaller, faster, both of those things?
4: So, the unfortunate answer is, is neither of those things. <laughs> um, so, there's certain very specific problems that quantum computers can solve faster than current computers. So, there's some things we actually can't do in our current computers that we can do with a quantum computer. And these are, to, to give you an example of how specific this is, um, one of them is the idea of factorizing large numbers. So if I gave you two numbers, like three and five, you can very easily multiply them together and get 15. And if I give you 15, you can you can work out what those two factors are, the three and the five. If I gave you two 150-digit numbers and a really big piece of paper and, like, a bit of time, you could actually probably multiply those numbers together with your long divisions, so long multiplication skills you learned in, in childhood. Yeah. But you wouldn't be able to take that resulting 300-digit number and factorise it into the two original ones. And actually a computer can't do that either. But a quantum computer can. And so that's one of the problems we can solve. And it sounds kind of esoteric, but a lot of our encryption on the internet relies on these what are called one-way mathematical problems. So things that you can do in one direction really easily, you can multiply really easily, but you can't do very easily in the other direction, so you can't factorise. So one of the things people were originally looking at quantum computers for is is breaking all the encryption that we currently use to secure traffic on the internet.
0: So why is that a positive thing? Don't we want to keep this encryption? Well, I mean,
4: if you're the only person who has a quantum computer, it gives you a significant advantage. But actually what's (laughs) happened is we've very rapidly developed methods of encryption using quantum properties that can't be broken. So quantum encryption is a much more developed field than quantum computers. And by the time we have a computer that's able to solve these problems, we'll have encryption algorithms that we can't break.
0: Right. Okay. So where does your research come into this? You're looking at quantum memory, which is the storage. Yeah. So, computers. I mean,
4: you can imagine if you need a, if you have a computer, you need some way of storing that information and that's using quantum memory. And this is a lot more difficult than a memory in a current computer, because quantum information is very fragile. So it degrades really quickly. So we need to take it and put it in some system where it will last for some amount of time. And just to give you an idea, if you have a material that has a quantum storage time of a millisecond, which is a thousandth thousandth of a second, you can happily go around to conferences around the world and proudly proclaim that you have a really long storage time for your quantum memory.
0: That's long. So that's long in nearly
4: every (laughs) system. So getting that out to useful levels, and useful is around about a second. There are some applications we need a few minutes or hours has been a real challenge. So the systems that I work on, which are a type of crystal, kind of a few years back we showed you could store information in them for six hours, which is still a world record, actually, yeah. for quantum storage in any sort of solid-state system, it's a lot harder than it is in, for normal information.
0: That's right, because, yeah, normal information is almost, uh, you know... I mean, in terms of time frame at the moment, we're pretty, pretty good, <laughs> <laughs> apart from hard drives crashing and fun things like that. But, um, so what sort of crystals are we storing these, um, this quantum information in? So the in? key
4: for us is using crystals that contain rare-earth elements... So you got to think back to your periodic table in high school, mm. and there's those two lines at the bottom. And the top line of those is the rare earth elements. And when you put them in a crystal, they have this unique property that they don't really interact very well with anything. So if you can give them a piece of quantum information, they can hold on to it for quite a long time without it degrading because it doesn't interact with anything that might disrupt that information.
0: Okay okay, interesting, so we 're going to dive into uh why um, how how your work's working with those crystals in a moment but uh, but I talked about in your introduction, fiona that uh, you 're talking about the formation of the elements and that sort of thing, and i I love the fact that we 've got the two of you in here and we 're going from quantum computing, which is like very small scale right up the other end as we delve into the world of the universe yeah. with you, fiona. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you're looking at, well, let's let's start with the universe. It's a big topic to study. How, how do you narrow down the whole universe to pick bits of it to, to do your research on?
3: That's a really good question. And I kind of went with what excited me about science. And for me, that was really nuclear physics and particle physics. So looking at how the chemical elements formed and how one atom can turn into another through radioactive decay. And what happens to the really energetic particles that can come out of that kind of interaction? And that's um, kind of one of the um, cruxes of particle physics. Um, So that was kind of how I narrowed it down. And we're looking at these processes which occur on really small scales, tiny, tiny scales, but in the context of the universe, which is massive. So you're going from things smaller than a single atom to something, you know, the size of a whole star or even the star in the context of its galaxy. Um, So that's sort of where my interest really is. That
0: sounds pretty amazing. Uh now, uh, your, a lot of your work is on antimatter. Um, so let's, let's start there. Let's define antimatter for a moment. What is it?
3: Yeah, so antimatter, you can think of it as matter's evil twin. So everything around, of, around us right now is made of ordinary matter. So you, me, the chairs that we're sitting on, all made of ordinary matter, atoms, things we're quite familiar with. But every single particle has a twin, which is made of antimatter. It has the same mass, so for example you could take the electron and its antimatter twin, the positron. They both have the same mass, but the electron has a negative charge and the positron has a positive charge. And the really defining thing about these particles is when they interact with one another and when they meet, they do something called annihilation. So there's this very famous equation of Einstein's, which is E equals mc squared, probably the most famous equation after F equals ma (laughs) that everyone's familiar with. And what happens in this annihilation between matter and antimatter is the mass of those two particles gets converted into energy. So the M in E equals mc squared goes to the E. So it's a way of converting. It's the only way of converting all mass into pure energy.
0: Mm. And I guess uh, sometimes people, when they think of antimatter, we think of um, science fiction uh, movies and TV shows and, and giant explosions and that sort of thing. Is, is that genuinely likely with this conversion into energy?
3: Yeah. So the thing with science fiction is it, it often really hams this up. So the example that I think of is the Dan Brown novel Angel- Angels and Demons, mm. where they have this antimatter device that could destroy the world in this massive bomb blast. But the problem we actually have with antimatter is we are surrounded by so much ordinary matter that antimatter can't hang around for long. So you have to somehow to get a lot of it in one place and make a big explosion, you would have to have some sort of way of trapping it. And that is possible, you can actually use magnetism and electric fields to trap it, but it doesn't last for very long. So you can only gather a very 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 tiny mass of antimatter. You know, We're talking about millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a gram of the stuff. And that being converted into energy, practically, you're not going to get that much energy out. The only place we would really see this happening and producing enormous explosions is actually in the context of things like supernovae. So we think there is a certain type of dying star which explodes by the inner core of the star turning into pairs of electrons and positrons, which then annihilate. And that's something which really doesn't pose any sort of danger to us here on Earth. In fact, it's only really a theoretical idea at this point.
0: Right, okay. (laughs) And so, uh, what's uh, what's your research looking at in terms of the antimatter? Are you, are you trying to to isolate it in in certain forms?
3: No. So there are scientists who do that. Um, actually, they do do that here in Canberra. There is an antimatter beam at the Australian National University. But what I'm interested in is studying where the antimatter in our own galaxy comes from. So this is a really long-standing mystery. So for about 50 years, we've observed gamma rays this energy which is coming from annihilating antimatter in our galaxy so there's about a million billion 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 positrons annihilating every single second out there in space the problem oh,
0: sorry that's that's a ridiculously large number how, it many, is. how many zeros on that number? that is
3: um i think i got the right number of billions there i think it. so it's actually one followed by 43 zeros That's about how much antimatter annihilates every second. And we don't actually know where most of it comes from. (laughs) So that's what I do. I'm trying to figure out what sort of dying stars or interactions out in space might be making all of this antimatter.
0: Right. And how are you detecting that?
3: So we see the gamma rays coming from the annihilation. So that E equals MC squared, we're seeing the E that's coming from the M, which is the antimatter. And we detect that using a special space telescope. It's called Integral, and that's the International Gamma Ray Laboratory, which is owned by the European Space Agency, ESA. And that telescope has been operating for nearly 20 years now. It will probably continue operating until about 2029. And that telescope is capable of seeing annihilating antimatter. It's capable of seeing the decay of radioactive elements which are actually being formed in stars. And it's capable of seeing all of this different um, radioactive material that's being moved around our galaxy.
0: Mm. Now, you're saying the word telescope and seeing there, but I feel (laughs) like we're not looking down a giant tube with lenses in it for this telescope. Now,
3: that would be the dream when it comes to gamma (laughs) rays, but obviously you can't just focus gamma rays the way we can regular light. So you can't bounce a gamma ray off a mirror, and focus it to a point. So what we have to do is we actually have this thing called a coded mask. It's a special patterned, lead screen, which has blocked out elements made of lead, and then clear elements made of a much more permeable material. And what happens is that when a gamma ray comes from a particular location, it will pass through this screen, and depending on where the gamma ray is coming from, it creates a different shadow on the detector. So it's a little bit like actually getting an X-ray. But we already know the shape of the thing that is blocking the path of the gamma ray. So what we can do is we do some really complicated maths and computer work, and then we can kind of guess where that gamma ray probably came from and what energy
0: it had. Yeah, sounds like some really interesting equipment there that you're uh, you're working on, Fiona. What sort of a- equipment are you using in your work, Rose, uh, to, to study the, the quantum crystals?
4: So one of the key things for us is that our crystals need to be pretty cold. Uh, we work around about... -270 degrees celsius so around about 3 or 4 kelvin yeah. this is considered so, warm for quantum technologies well,
0: that's warm cuz i mean that temperature is is you know the absolute the, the coldest temperature we can get is -273.15 um, in in celsius so that's that's pretty darn cold it's pretty
4: cold so a lot of quantum technologies operate at um, 10 millikelvin. so this is 0.01 away from absolute zero so they're a lot colder. But even so, <laughs> ours, our systems are still, um, you know, there's a still a, a good amount of kit to get there. Yeah. The way you can get down to about minus 270 Kelvin is with liquid helium. So you take helium gas. If you can get that cold enough, you it will liquefy at 4 Kelvin and then you can basically make a big thermos flask that you fill with liquid helium and you dunk your sample in and you sit it there at 4 Kelvin shining lasers through it to understand how it's interacting with light and to um, store the information on the light into the crystal.
0: Wow. wow. That, um, what, what does liquid helium look like?
4: So, it's an interest. It's Okay, liquid helium is clear. Yeah. Uh, it's got a refractive index very close to air. So, if you know when you look, when you're underwater and you open your eyes and it's all blurry, yeah. that's because the refractive index of water is different to that of air and your eyes are not designed to work in the water but liquid helium is very similar to air so we have these thermoses we have have windows in them so we can shine laser beams through them and you can't tell if it's filled with liquid helium or not unless you unless (laughs) the exact the top of it is level with your windows because it looks exactly like it's just completely empty it's
0: just the same Right. Have you ever done that mistake in an experiment, been testing it? it's like it's not working, oh, we forgot the liquid helium?
4: So sometimes we often fill these up and then the liquid helium drops as it boils off and sometimes your experiment stops working and you eventually realise it's because you've run out of helium and hadn't quite realised we measure the temperature. Yeah. But um, it can be... It's, it's non-intuitive what's going on at those temperatures. So you do really <laughs> have to rely on a lot of your senses... And a lot of your understanding of the dynamics of helium, as opposed to water or air, to really work out what's happening.
0: Yeah, amazing. And so you're cooling uh, these quantum crystals down to those super low temperatures. Um, and uh, what 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 differences are we seeing there in their behaviours that are so the,
4: so what temperature is is the motion of atoms. So if atoms are moving really fast, that's a high temperature. If they're moving really slowly, that's a lower temperature. And absolute zero is where there's there's no motion at all. So the reason we're cooling our crystals down is we don't really want the atoms to move. We need the atoms to be in this really isolated environment where they're not changing and nothing around them is changing. So this is temperature, this is Uh, electric and magnetic fields this is any change in any of the atoms around them so that's why we really have to get to these low temperatures
0: right amazing stuff and so i mean if we're looking at uh, those uh, super low temperatures there for these applications is uh, is it ever going to be practical in a real sense to to have this for for I'm trying to apply it to the real world here and I feel like if we're always under liquid helium, this this might be a bit difficult.
4: So at the moment, basically every quantum technology we're studying needs to be very cold. Yeah, okay. Um, There's maybe one or two things that people are looking at that might operate at room temperature, but for the most part we're really considering systems that need to be quite cold. So they're unlikely to be something you'll be carrying around in your pocket. Yeah. And they're unlikely to be useful for most of the things that you use your computer for or your phone. But you can imagine, you know, we have the computing that we have at the moment. We have all these servers on the cloud that you access through the internet. There's no reason that you couldn't do that with a quantum system. You couldn't have, you know, a quantum computer sitting in one of these expensive refrigerators in a room somewhere on the other side of the world that you can access.
0: Yeah, okay, quite interesting indeed. And I... um. Uh, yeah, and I guess, uh, too, once we get the understanding, the better understanding of what's going on at that uh, that level, then we can try and start to look at it in other ways, too, potentially. Is, is there any likelihood that uh, that it could, once we understand what's going on at the the very slow um, temperature level, that we could start applying it to, to warmer systems?
4: So it really is a matter of finding a system that will be okay yeah. at warmer temperatures. So we know for the systems that we're studying, there's simply... We simply cannot control the properties at higher temperatures. One of the ones people do look at, we look at a bit here at ANU, is, using, is making diamond quantum, comput- com- quantum computers. So this is using diamonds uh, which have a particular type of what's called a defect in them that you can use to do computing at room temperature. Now, getting the performance out of those systems that you can get out of the cold systems is still um, very much an open question but it's one of the ones that has some potential to operate at room temperature that you might be able to carry around.
0: Okay. Amazing. Amazing. So I guess that's kind of some of the ways that we could start applying this work to our everyday lives, whether it's a cloud that's accessing super cool quantum computing or this diamond area. In terms of your work, Rose, I mean, we've been talking about up in, uh, sorry, no, in, I'm looking at the wrong person in terms of your work, <laughs> Fiona. Um, uh, what uh, what sort of applications can we see down here on Earth, or are we just striving for further knowledge at this stage?
3: It is a re- it is a really good question because I think people, you know, it can seem like astronomy might be this big waste of money, and gamma ray astronomy especially because it's something that we don't often talk about here in Australia. Um, but what I'm trying to do actually is to make people realize that gamma-ray astronomy is very important to us here on Earth. So I think about antimatter... And we do actually use antimatter here on Earth for a very important application, which will affect many people, I think, around one in six during their lifetimes, and that's cancer diagnosis. So if you get certain types of cancer, in order to figure out where that cancer is, how large a tumor is, and whether it can be removed, one of the things that happens is you get injected with a special substance which emits positrons, this antimatter, and it's called a PET scan or positron emission tomography. And what you can you do is you go into this special gamma ray detector, which looks at your whole body, and it images, using positron annihilation, where those cancers might be. And one of the problems we have is making a really sharp, really accurate picture from those gamma rays. It's a problem for astronomy that we have to deal with on a daily basis in our work, but it's also a problem in medical physics. So I'm working at the moment to actually develop um, some new computer algorithms, which are able to reconstruct a much sharper image of gamma rays in the context of astronomy, which can then be taken and actually be applied to those medical technologies in the future so that we can see much more clearly than we can now where a cancer might be. And it can even improve treatment. So radioisotope treatment, um, radiotherapy for cancer, we need to be able to see really clearly where cancer is, especially somewhere delicate like the brain, so that we don't, produ- we don't cause any excess damage using radiotherapy. So that's a really important application of gamma-ray astronomy, which has already helped medical imaging, and it's going to help even more in the future.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, it's been uh, great to talk to you both about your, what I feel like is, is very cutting-edge research on, uh, on the edge of our, our human knowledge. But uh, as I asked my guests earlier, how, how did you folks end up in, uh, in this area of research? What led you um, to this, Rose?
4: So I guess as a kid, I always quite liked science. I was never really that directed. So, you know, I went to university. I'm like, well, I like science. I'll study science. But physics really gelled with me. So physics is really about learning basic concepts and then applying them to solve problems in the world around us and that I enjoyed the problem solving aspect and I enjoyed the not having to remember very many things at the same time aspect because I'm not especially good at that so I did a physics degree now when I was looking into what I did for, wanted to do for research one of the things I had picked up in my undergraduate studies is that I quite liked spectroscopy So that's basically using light to study the properties of atoms. It's Again, it's kind of a problem-solving thing, right? You send a laser beam through a crystal and you get this spectrum of, like, you absorb light at this frequency and this frequency and this frequency and this frequency. And And then you go on your little detective hunt and you say, okay, what could be in this crystal that's causing that absorption? So that sort of, like, problem-solving aspect is the thing I really enjoyed about spectroscopy. And that's what led me into doing spectroscopy of rare earth ions and then into the quantum information and quantum computing.
0: Very interesting. It's a nice little pathway there. Very inspirational. And for yourself, Fiona?
4: Yeah, I was
3: always very interested in science, um, very excited by sort of all of these different ideas around physics and chemistry. Um, But I was was never super into, you know, looking through a telescope at things. And, you know, you stereotypically think, oh, astronomers, you know, you really enchanted with looking at the sky and looking at Pretty pictures from a young age. Um, But I really got into physics actually through maths. So I had a fabulous maths teacher in my final year of high school who just encouraged me to explore ideas around um, using calculus to solve problems um, in maths. And I went to university and I chose to study maths and physics. And I actually got to the final year of my undergrad and I really wanted to do research in math. Um, and unfortunately, um, I was just one of those people who my grades were, well, they weren't bad, but I wasn't right at the top where I needed to be if I wanted to do math research. But what was really cool is I had found this project, um, which was using computers and I'd never really written any computer programs before I started this project, but I quickly got into it and realized there's this really um beautiful way of solving problems using computers you you write this program and then you execute it and it just gives you this really interesting solution to a problem and and that was what really sort of drove me forward was realizing that you can take physics and then use the computer to solve the problem and um i was really focused on trying to find an existing problem to find a solution to And when I heard about this mystery associated with antimatter in our galaxy, I thought, well, there is a mystery that there has to be an answer to. Because if you see something happening, there has to be an explanation for that. It's not just happening for no reason. So that really motivated me to go on and do a PhD and try and find some of the answers. And I still, that's what I do now. I look for things which are happening out there in the universe. And you have to say, there has to be a solution to that. And that's, what i really enjoy about science
0: that's fantastic we both sound like a couple of very motivated problem solvers very interesting stuff indeed uh if our listeners want to find out more uh from both of you you're both speaking uh this week at uh, the pint of science events where can we find you
4: so i am going to be at bolt bar in aranda tomorrow night
0: fantastic you're all about
4: quantum information
0: And And
3: I will be at uh, Ace High, um, and that's in Greenway, I think, and that'll be on Wednesday night.
0: That's right, down Tuggeranong Way, so north and south indeed. Uh, And listeners, there are, as I said earlier, there are a huge range of events happening. In fact, 12 of them across Canberra over the next three days, 2021 and 22 May, uh, at uh, Bar and Aranda, at Ace High Eatery down in uh, Greenway, Tuggeranong there. Also at King O'Malley's in the city, and Griffins out at Griffith. Uh, if you want more details, you can check them out at pintofscience.com.au and you can book your tickets there for just $6 each. Uh, so go along and check it out. There's two speakers every night and a huge range of fantastic science. Uh, so thanks very much, Rose and Fiona, for joining us in the studio today. Thank you. No problem. It's uh, It's been an absolute pleasure having all our Pint of Science guests. And uh, it's almost time for me to wrap up here for Fuzzy Logic for another week. If you did enjoy today's episode, you can download the podcast online. We're at Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. Or you can find us on iTunes as well. Just search for Fuzzy Logic and click on the one with the Autumn Leaf logo. We're also on uh, Facebook and Twitter at Fuzzy Logic Sci. That's Fuzzy Logic S C I. So you can find us there. Or you can email us askfuzzy at zoho.com. My name's Ben Broderick Matthews. Thanks very much for joining us here on Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.